Well, today I'm excited because we are in the middle of the book of Daniel, and this is the most common and familiar story of Daniel. Uh, Most of us who grew up in the church know this story, and it's Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, So turn with me now, Daniel chapter 6, as we look at Daniel in the lion's den. I'll just read the first uh, 18 verses to, to start, and then we'll finish the entire chapter later on in the sermon. But as you can see, this is the main chapter of the book, and that's why we have this image behind me of the lion, which points to the main theme of the book uh, as we look at this very important uh, account of Scripture in Daniel chapter 6. So read with me now in Daniel 6. I'm looking at the ESV translation. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to to him, O king Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, in this chapter, we're going to look at four different things. First, we're going to see a leader of dignity. Then we'll see a plan of deceit, a life of devotion, and a God of dominion. So the first thing that we read in Daniel 6 is we learn about a leader of dignity. Now, last week, as we looked at Daniel chapter 5, we, we talked about a new king who came in town, and he represented a different empire. And this king was the name Darius. Darius represented the Persians. And the Persians came over, and they, they ransacked Babylon, and they defeated the Babylonians. There's a lot of debate. There's been a lot of debate over the years about who this king Darius was. In my opinion, he was the general of the emperor uh, Cyrus, the great Persian, and he was the general. He, he was known as another name of Gobrias. Gobrias was the name of this general of, king, of, of, the, of the king of Babylon, or who captured the king of Babylon. And this man represented that of Persia, Darius. He was around 62, 63 years old when he became king. And what this reminds me of is that the book of Daniel constantly talks about different kings and different kingdoms And how God is sovereign over all kings and over all kingdoms. And now we see yet another. We see another king representing now a different empire. His name was Darius. And as Darius came over and he defeated the Babylonians and he took over the city of Babylon, he began to establish his structure of government. And in verse 1, we see that this structure was made up of 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over these Satraps were three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Now, King Darius, this new king of town, he wanted to establish his government structure. And as he ruled over this massive empire, he established 120 government leaders called satraps. A satrap is like a governor today. And these governors, there was 120 of them spread throughout all of the region of Babylon and they, they represented the King Darius of Persia. Now, what's interesting is, is not only did he have 120 governors, but he also had three high officials that were overseeing and supervising the 120 governors. And these three high officials were the direct report, report to King Darius. And of those three officials, it says that Daniel was the top official who was the sole direct report to Darius. Look at verse 3 again. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. What this tells me is, is that Daniel was second in command. He was next in line under this new king in town, King Darius. And he supervised not only the two other high officials, but the 120 satraps. This was the government structure that Darius put in place And verse 2 tells us that the king might suffer no loss. Now, what this tells us in history is that not only did Babylon before have rulers who misrepresented the people, but also Persia was known to have rulers who abused their authority. Not only did they abuse their authority, but they stole from people and they misrepresented people by not only voting against what they wanted, and not representing them correctly, but they also would steal from them, and and they would take money and taxes from their people. That's why Darius established this pattern so he would suffer no loss, meaning he wanted to make sure there was an accountability structure in place, and Daniel was his right-hand man. 
Daniel was his right-hand man because an excellent spirit was in him. Now, we know that excellent spirit is the Holy Spirit, is God himself. And throughout Daniel's life, we've seen time and time and time again how God helped him be wise in governance, how God promoted him to different levels of leadership and of authority. And now, once again, Daniel, scholars say, was around 80 years old at this time in his life. Towards the end of his ministry, he's 80 years old, and yet another time he gets promoted by yet another king representing another kingdom. So even though we have all these different kings and kingdoms that we've talked about for these six chapters of Daniel, we've seen yet one Daniel, one faithful Daniel who has lasted a long time. And God has helped him be wise in his governing and has given him different levels of promotions. What's interesting here is that when you look at verse 4 and 5, you can see that the other leaders, they didn't like Daniel. Because not only was he promoted second in command, but they couldn't find any dirt on him. Verse 4 and 5. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground or complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. These 120 leaders, plus the two high officials, they said, we don't like this Daniel guy because he's the favorite to the king. King Darius has promoted him, and he's supervising all of us, but yet he's representing a different God than we believe. We don't like this man. And so they went through all the files in his life, and they tried to dig dirt on Daniel, and they could find nothing. No ground of complaint on this man, Daniel, for his 80-plus years of faithful living. They couldn't find anything. You know, it's interesting as we think about people who run for office and whenever there's a campaign season and a political season, the opposing candidate will always try to find dirt on their opposition. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, you might hear made up stories or you'll, you'll hear slanderous things or, or things brought up about somebody's past 40 years ago. Well, they tried to do that for Daniel and they found absolutely nothing. Isn't that amazing? They couldn't find anything. Is this not wonderful? Would it not be wonderful if that could be said of every Christian, especially us? You see, Daniel was living in a, in a time where he was in exile. He was living in the world, but not of the world. And he had so many opportunities to compromise his convictions. But yet he didn't. He remained faithful to the Lord because God was with him. The spirit was with him. An excellent spirit was with him. And that's why he was able to successfully live a faithful life. Because his opposition, the other leaders that he served with, couldn't find anything, they ended up coming up with a plan. And that's the second point of the matter. It's a a deceitful plan. And this plan was, they said, well, let's, If we can't find anything on Daniel, let's try to, we know that he loves the Lord, so let's try to come up with an idea that the king will be a part of where it will put him in direct opposition to the king and his Lord. And Daniel will have to choose if he'll be faithful to his Lord and to his God, or if he'll be faithful to the king. They did all this because they were jealous of Daniel. And some of you, like me, you grew up looking at the Sunday morning comics 
And there was the, the comics of Peanuts. Do you remember Peanuts and Charlie Brown? Where Charles Schultz, his very first Peanuts cartoon, it shows a boy and a girl sitting on some steps by a sidewalk. And another boy approached them in the distance, and the boy says to the girl, well, here comes old Charlie Brown. And Charlie passes in front of them, and the same lad says, good old Charlie Brown, yes, sir. And after Charlie passes beyond earshot, both boy and the girl look after him, and the boy says, good old Charlie Brown, how I hate him. So out of the blue. This was the very first cartoon that Charles Schultz uh, put in the newspaper. Uh, in his comic of Peanuts. What this tells me is that these friends hated Charlie Brown because he was a good old boy, a goody two-shoes. They could find no dirt on him. In the same way, Daniel's leadership friends, friends in leadership, they couldn't find any dirt on him. They just said, he's a good old boy, and I hate him so. You can see that the jealousy just reek through their lives. And so they come up with the plan of deceit. They, they, they find out that this man is a man of dignity, a, a, a dignified leader. And so they say, we can't find anything on him, so let's come up with this scheme. Look again at verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king, and they said to him, O king Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction, that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. You know why I call this a deceitful scheme? Because the plan was full of deceit. It was a lie. Because notice that these satraps, these leaders, they they came to the king and they said, all of us have agreed to this plan. Did all of them agree to it? No, because Daniel didn't. So not all of the satraps and officials agreed to this because Daniel wasn't a part of the meeting. He was not included in the discussion. But yet they went to the king and they said, oh yeah, everybody, including Daniel, came up with this plan that if Anybody were to pray to other gods than you, O great king, they should be thrown into the den of lions. Now, what we know in history is that Persian kings didn't always consider themselves gods, but because Darius signed this injunction, he just wanted to be the sole mediator between his people and the gods of Persia. He just wanted to be that mediator, and he wanted to keep the peace, and he thought, well, if all of my leaders brought forth this law for me to sign, then I should probably sign it. Because I need their support just as much as they need mine. So he went along with this plan thinking that Daniel and everybody else agreed to this plan. But not only was this plan deceitful, look at the consequences of this plan. If someone for 30 days were not to pray to the king, but instead pray to another god, they would be thrown into a den of lions. A den of lions. Now why? Did they have a den of lions back in the day? Well, we know that not only in Babylon, but also in Persia, lion hunting was the sport of great kings. And kings would go and they would try to hunt these ravenous beasts, these lions. Hunt them for sport to show that they were mighty and powerful. But they not only hunted 
these lions, but they would put them into a den so that they would, they would punish any criminal or anybody who was disloyal in their court. And they would throw them into this den of lions where the lions would just gobble them up. Now, some of you love animals here, and I studied this week the lion to learn more about what lions are and what they do. Did you know a couple things that lions, they can go without water for four days, but they can't go without food for four days. The male lion needs to eat 16 pounds of meat every day. 16 pounds of meat. That's a lot of meat. Could you imagine? The lioness has to eat 11 pounds of meat every day. Now, why do they have to eat so much meat every day? It's because they can range anywhere between three and 420 pounds. These are massive, massive creatures. They prey on large herbivores, such as zebras and buffalo. They also find mice, birds, lizards, and tortoises. They even shred apart and eat. The other thing about lion is not only do they eat a lot, and they have to eat a lot of meat every day, but they also hunt best in the evenings. Their vision is roughly six times more sensitive to light than humans, giving them a distinct advantage to humans while hunting at night. Why do I say that? Because the den of lions was pretty dark. And so whenever a human being was thrown into this den, they would already be in in a disadvantage, not only because they're going against these ravenous beasts, but it's dark. And the lions tend to hunt in the evening because they can see better in the evening when humans can't. So another disadvantage there. A couple other things about the lion that I thought was interesting. Their claws are retractable. They can reach up to one and a half inches in length. Imagine that digging into you. They can also get up to 50 miles an hour, and they can jump up to 36 feet. 50 miles an hour, and they can jump up to 36 feet. Now, this week, I was talking to Joel McCall, our associate pastor. Joel goes to Africa about four times a year, and this is where you see a lot of these kind of lions in Africa. He told me a story, a true story, where he was in Uganda one year, And they were on the border of the DR Congo, and and they went into this camp, and they saw a lot of soldiers uh, there. And the soldiers just came out, and they they saw Joel and his friends in a car. And one of the soldiers came out and said, hey, do you mind taking me into the next city? Uh, Because we've been kind of stuck here in our compound for the last two days, because right around the corner, there's a den of lions. And none of us want to go on foot or even on bike because these lions will eat us up. This, this guy, the same soldier who Joel ended up helping and taking him to where he wanted to go in a car, he told a story that just within those two days, there was a, a man in the evening uh, who rode his bike across the border because there were a lot of people who would smuggle in alcohol from a, across the border in and try to sell it illegally. Well, this man was by himself in the night. And I'm not going to tell you all the graphic stories. We've got kids in here. But all I can say is this. The man just said, we, we just found a skull. That's what a lion can do. A lion wants to eat. And they'll eat people if people come in their way. That was a form of punishment back in the day. For anybody who was disloyal or any kind of hard criminal, they'd be thrown into a den of lions and they would be ripped up to shreds. So here's this deceitful plan and scheme that the leaders came up with to take Daniel down. And let's see how Daniel responded to this. We get into a life of devotion, verse 10. 
When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Okay, Daniel heard about this injunction. He heard about this new law. He's probably thinking, well, this is directly at me. But what does he do? He doesn't go and cower. He doesn't go back and he say, oh, no, I, I, have to, I have to compromise my convictions. But instead, he went directly to his home, an open window, and he prayed. He went completely against this new law and this new ordinance. He went against the king himself. Why? Because he wanted to obey God rather than man. And he knew that this was going directly against his convictions. He would not compromise the truth. So what did he do? He went directly back to his home and he prayed. Now what's interesting is, it says he had the open window facing Jerusalem. He's praying toward Jerusalem. Why in the world would he do that? Well, the reason why people back in Daniel's day prayed to Jerusalem, facing Jerusalem, is because they were in exile from their homeland. And the reason why they prayed to Jerusalem, it goes back to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56, where Solomon talked about in his prayer, he talked about whenever God's people would exile and be taken away from their homeland, they are to pray to Jerusalem to be reminded that God's presence was there and that was their homeland, but also to be reminded of God's covenant faithfulness to them and God's covenant promises to them. That even though they found themselves away from their homeland, they are to be reminded in faith that God was still with them as they faced Jerusalem. That's why he faced Jerusalem. But the more important matter of this is not that he faced Jerusalem, but is that he prayed. That he prayed, and it said he prayed three times a day. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I said Daniel was around 80 at this time. I was telling my my daughter Abby yesterday, I said, Abby, did you know that Daniel was 80 in the lion's den? And she said, what? She says, all the pictures in the kids' story Bibles are of Daniel as a young boy. He's an 80-year-old man? Yeah, he was 80. He was thrown into this den of lions. But what I love about Daniel is, here he is, an 80-year-old man. And time and time and time again, he did not compromise his faith. But he stood by his convictions. How is he able to do that? Well, one, most importantly, we know God was with him. The Spirit was with him, and it's only by the grace of God that would go. The other thing, though, I'd say that's important is that Daniel was disciplined. He was devoted. He was devoted to prayer, and he prayed three times a day, faithfully, regularly, consistently. He did it throughout his life, and so when the hard times came, (laughs) he didn't back away, but he he rose to the challenge. Because he was prayed up. He was fueled up. Prayer is what fuels our spiritual engines, our lives. It's what fuels our ministries. If you're not praying, you're going to die, essentially, spiritually. Why do we need to pray? Because we're praying, asking the Lord to help us every day. And especially when the hard times come, we need to be prayed up so that we can rise to that occasion. You know, I love love great musicians, And what makes them great is they practice. I love great athletes and watching great athletes. What makes them great and what makes them rise to the challenge? Practice, practice, practice. 
I don't know about you, but I'm enjoying watching the NCAA tournament, and I love all the upsets that are happening. It's so much fun, and I love that our team won yesterday. Big win, right? I just love NCAA basketball, especially March Madness and the tourney. This week, I was, I was learning about what makes these players so good. It's hard to play in the collegiate level, especially the NCAA. So what makes them so good? Well, it's practice. Some of it's natural ability, but a lot of it's practice. Here's a typical day schedule of an NCAA basketball player. From 5 to 6 a.m., they wake up and they get ready for the day. 6 to 8 a.m. every day, they go to strength and conditioning training and they, and they practice with their team. 6 to 8 a.m. 8 to 8.30, right after the practice, they have a team meeting to discuss the practice. At 9, from 9 to 1, they have class. They, they got to go study, so they go to class. From 1 to 2 every day, they eat lunch. That's a late lunch, but they eat lunch. At 2, from 2 to 2.30, they have a film study with the team. They go back with their team, and they study film of their practice, of their games, uh, all those things. From 2.30 to 3, they prepare for their practice coming up, meaning they get taped up, they get looked at by the doctors, by the strength coaches, all the above, to make sure they're ready for the practice. From 3 to 6, every day for three hours, they have a practice and strength and conditioning training. From 6 to 7, they have a shower, treatment, and rehab from the practice. Maybe they had an injury or whatever it may be. 7 to 7.30, 30 minutes, they have dinner. And then 7.39, they have study time and academic support. And occasionally, 9 to midnight, they'll have homework. And then at 5 a.m., they get up and do it all over again. You know, you would think, wow, that's, a, that's quite a commitment. Don't they get some time off? Well, in the off-season, players might end up having class. They'll have individual small group workouts. They'll have weights and conditioning and it's, they, all are, they all have to pick up the day after the season's over. They might get two or three days off here and there, but that's it. And very rarely do they get a long Christmas break or Thanksgiving break, spring break, or summer break. It might be three days max. That's what makes them so good. Practice, practice, practice. And it's fun watching them in the tournament because they really give their all in the tournament. Well, in the same way, what made Daniel so faithful is practice. He prayed, he prayed, he prayed, he was disciplined. And that's what made him so faithful. And that's why he was able to be respected and have such a great respect from King Darius and from the outsiders. They couldn't find any dirt on him because he was disciplined in his faith. My question to you is, how are you in the spiritual disciplines? How are you doing? And if you aren't reading the Bible and aren't praying regularly, start today. It's never too late. Start today because that's what will keep you going and keep you faithful. You know, we we do have several people in their 60s and 70s, some 80s in this room. Once again, other than Caleb and Abraham and many other examples, we see once again yet another example of an 80-year-old man who rose to the challenge. 80 years old. History records that many people made some of their greatest contributions to society after the age of 65. Galileo made his greatest discovery when he was 73, Galileo. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, was 69 years old when he was still working on the mission field, opening up new territories in Indochina. The Earl of Habsburg, the Earl of Habsburg was 90 years old when he began preparing a volume of revision to the English law. 90 years old, he's writing laws for English Parliament. 90. You know, Yogi Berra made the statement, it ain't over till it's over. 
It ain't over till it's over. There's really no such thing as retirement in the Bible. You've heard that before. And some of you have retired from your work. Great, wonderful. I hope to retire from work one day. One day, it's far out. But here's the thing, you never retire from serving the Lord. Never. And so just as John Piper said, you don't need to go to the beach and collect seashells for the rest of your life. I'd tell you, hey, if you're 70, 80, 90 years old, you got a lot to give. And me and the younger generation, we need you. We need your wisdom. We need to learn from you. We need to learn from your mistakes, from your successes. I've talked to several of you, and you said, well, I don't have a lot to offer. Well, I'll say, well, just tell me your mistakes. <laughs> That'll help. <laughs> They'll say, okay, I can, I can tell you plenty of those. Psalm 92, verse 12 says, The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. Look at verse 14. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. They are ever full of sap at an old age. To declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Full of life, full of sap, full of energy in his old age. So it ain't over till it's over. For Daniel, it wasn't over. And once again, he rose to it. And once again, he gets promoted. 80 years old. Amazing. So here we see a devoted man. So let's now look at how he responded to all this. So the king wasn't happy about this. And he even thought, well, Daniel's my right-hand man. Maybe I can, maybe I can figure out how to go around this law, but they reminded the king because they knew how much he loved Daniel. They said, you can't go against your law. You just agree to this with your signet ring. You can't do this, right? You've sealed the deal. And so now King Darius (laughs) takes Daniel into the den and he throws him in there. Archaeologists have said these lion's, lion's dens usually had two entrances, a ramp below for the lions to go in and the hole above for the victims to be thrown in. And the stone that was rolled over the hole, it was rolled over there so that there would be no way a human could go back up and crawl and move this huge, massive stone. But the other thing that you need to think about here is that the king sealed it with his ring to secure the stone in place once that man or woman was thrown into the den. Why did the king do that? Because the king's signet ring represented that if anybody were to try to come and remove the stone and rescue the person who was thrown into the den, they would have to deal directly to the king and to authority. And nobody would want to do that because they would end up getting thrown into the den of lions. So a lot was at stake here. But what happened in the end? Let's go back to verse 19 and let's finish the chapter. Verse 19 Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been made to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. Listen to this. They, their children, and their wives. 
And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them all and broke their bones in pieces. Kids, wives, men. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be no end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Amazing. What's fascinating here is you see the difference between a 63-year-old king and an 80-year-old follower of the Lord. Notice how the 63-year-old king couldn't sleep that night. He was living in a palace. He had all the world could offer. He had power. He had fame. He had riches. He had this palace he was living in, but yet he couldn't sleep. Daniel, on the other hand, was thrown into a den of lions. We don't know if he slept, but he probably did. He was at peace in a lion's den. Wow, what a difference. And when the king in the morning rose up and he went to the den, he calls out, Daniel, are you still alive? Did the Lord protect you? And Daniel said, here I am. I haven't been even scratched by the lion. Some people even say he petted the lions. I don't know about that. That's a children's story. We don't know about that. But we do know he was there and he was unharmed. The lions didn't rip him to shreds. The king was blown away by this. And what did he do? He threw all those people, those leaders, who had this deceitful scheme and their wives and children into this den of lions. And what did the lions do but gobble them up before they even hit the ground? And after all of this, what did the king say? Verse 26. I make a decree that in my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, this God of dominion. He is a living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions, this sovereign God of dominion, once again proved faithful. And that he could even shut the mouths of lions. The last thing I want to mention here is that remember what I talked about the stone rolling over the den of lions and how the king would secure it with his signet ring? What does that remind you of? It reminds us of what happened on Good Friday. It reminds us of Easter coming up. And in Matthew chapter 26, Pilate said these words. He said, you have a guard, go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Why did they do that? Because once again, Pilate was saying, we're going to seal this stone once it's rolled in place, when Jesus' body is placed in the tomb, because anybody that tries to remove the stone and tries to take the body of Jesus We'll have to deal directly with the authorities. Nobody wanted to do that. But yet, could the stone and could the seal, could it keep Jesus down? No. Jesus conquered sin and death. And the stone was rolled away. He resurrected from the grave. 
And now he's alive as our king. Daniel 6 points to a greater king, greater than Belshazzar or Darius or Nebuchadnezzar. He points to Jesus Christ. And Jesus is that God of dominion that we all need to bow down to humbly and serve daily. He is the sovereign God who is ruler of all. Kings come and go. Kingdoms come and go. Presidents come and go. Generals come and go. Pastors come and go. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always with us. He is our true leader. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, don't have a relationship with him, don't love him, I encourage you to let today be the day where you commit your life to following King Jesus. Your life will never, ever, ever be the same. And begin preparing your hearts for Easter in just a few weeks.